Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the growing threat to the First Amendment from anti-boycott laws being passed in state legislatures, prepackaged and delivered by the Koch-funded ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Joining us is Alan Leverett, the founder and publisher of the Arkansas Times, who has filed a lawsuit against Arkansas's anti-boycott law, which is being reviewed by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. We will discuss his op-ed at the New York Times, where a small Arkansas newspaper, Why is the State Making Us Sign a Pledge About Israel?, and examine how, in standing up for his First and Fourteenth Amendment rights, Allen's newspaper is losing advertising revenue as his small newspaper is being forced by the state of Arkansas to sign a pledge against the BDS boycott of Israel movement, which has nothing to do with the local issues his paper deals with. As other states like Texas busily pass similar anti-boycott laws that will muzzle critics of fossil fuel dependence and prevent state agencies from contracting with businesses that boycott firearm companies or trade associations, the Supreme Court will eventually have to decide whether these anti-boycott laws allowing governments to use money to punish dissent will encourage the creation of ever more repressive laws that risk strangling free speech for years to come. Then we'll look into the Biden administration's announcement that it is tapping into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in coordination with China, India, Japan, South Korea and the UK and speak with Tyson Slocum, who is the director of the energy program at Public Citizen. He works on promoting decentralized sustainable energy and shifting incentives away from nuclear oil and coal industries towards efficiency, renewable energy and mass transit and we will assess how and when this globally coordinated approach will lower prices at the pump. Then finally, we'll get an appraisal of President Biden's speech today addressing inflation and speak with Mike Consul, a director at the Roosevelt Institute, where he focuses on economics, inequality, and the role of public power in a democracy. He is a co-author with Joseph Stieglitz of Rewriting the Rules of the American Economy, And his latest book is Freedom from the Market, America's Fight to Liberate Itself from the Grip of the Invisible Hand. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Alan Leverett, who is the founder and publisher of the Arkansas Times. His lawsuit against Arkansas's anti-boycott law is being reviewed by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alan Leverett. Good to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And your guest essay in the New York Times were a small Arkansas newspaper, Why is the State Making a Sign a Pledge About Israel?, certainly uh, got my attention, and I imagine uh, a lot of other people around the country. So how did this come about, that you are covering local issues, but yet you're being embroiled or dragged into a foreign policy dispute in the Middle East? Yeah, this this was not a fight that we wanted. Uh, So there are now 33 states in the country that have anti-boycott laws. And this came through the, uh, an organization called ALEC that basically feeds what they call model legislation to Republican-dominated uh, state legislatures. And so that's how suddenly in one year all of these, uh, all these, legislatures, these legislatures suddenly had um, the anti-boycott uh, legislation on the docket. And basically, it's the 
I think the Israeli government under Netanyahu was concerned about the BDS movement, which is an international movement uh, to boycott Israel because of the way that they uh, have treated the, the Palestinians. And so uh, they, the best way they could figure out how to stop it in the United States was through these laws. And so ALEC, which does creates a lot of conservative legislation, worked with the Israeli government to come up with these laws. And they sent them out, and there's actually a blank on each one of the uh, the, the uh, pieces of legislation that leaves a blank where you can just put in your state's name. So they're, they're cookie-cutter laws. And the, ALEC is the American Legislative Exchange Council. Um, it is. It founded is. in part and funded by the Koch brothers. So, yeah. But specifically, how did it impact you in terms of advertising revenue? How so? Yeah. So we've been we've been publishing in Arkansas for forty seven years, and uh, I started the Times when I was twenty two years old, and we get we started getting these letters from various state agencies that we did business with the health department, the hospitals. And we pretty much just ignored them. We thought it was a crazy, unenforceable uh, law because think of the hundreds of thousands of transactions that the state does every day and how do they keep track of this. But there was one one purchasing agent at a college that we had done business with for many years, and he uh, just kept persisting. And finally, he told the marketing people to pull their contract because we wouldn't sign the, the, the pledge. And we don't take we don't take political positions in return for advertising. And from our point of view, that's what they were asking us to do. Uh, we don't take a position on boycotting Israel. Uh, we're a newspaper. We're an intensely local newspaper. We're interested in Medicaid expansion and protecting it here in Arkansas. We are not interested in the Middle East. We're an authority on barbecue in Arkansas. We are not an authority on what's going on uh, between Israel and Palestine. So we don't take a position. We just say, you have no right to tell us what, uh, what kind of political position to take in return for advertising. We pay our taxes in Little Rock. We do not pay our taxes in Tel Aviv. So that's our position. And specifically, this happened in 2018. You got this ultimatum from the University of Arkansas Pulaski Technical College, which was a, a long time advertiser in your newspaper and you lost that account because you wouldn't sign this pledge right and the pledge That's what, right. what we, is the we, pledge asking the, you to do the, the pledge says that we we do not we will not and and have not boycotted israel which is the furthest thing from our mind i mean again we're a local we're a local actually now we're, we're a local magazine and uh, we write about Arkansas. We write about Arkansas history. We write about Arkansas culture. We are very, very involved in Arkansas politics. And uh, we're, we're slightly left of center, a more liberal publication. We're, we're basically the voice of the blue community in a red state. And we've been that way for many, many, many years. But we are not going to let the, the state legislature dictate to us uh, what we think is what we we consider to be a political position, which is not boycotting Israel. It's just the principle of the thing. And uh, so, and we have no intention of boycotting Israel, but I'll be doggone if I'm going to let them tell me what to do. So this is a First Amendment issue. It's a First, First Amendment issue. It's also a 14th Amendment issue because it's equal protection. So my competitor over here, who's willing to sign anything in the world to get money, uh, he can go ahead and do that. And, you know, we, we have to, we have to, we have to, we can't get, we can't get our advertising on merit. We've always gotten it on merit, but now merit doesn't have anything to do with this. It makes it what, the only thing it makes it, uh, the only thing that's important now is that we, we take a position that the state of Arkansas finds acceptable. And again, I'm speaking with Alan Leverett, who's a founder and publisher of the Arkansas Times. His lawsuit against Arkansas's anti-boycott law is being reviewed by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. And he has an article at the New York Times where a small Arkansas newspaper, why is the state making us sign a pledge about Israel? So in terms of the state of Arkansas and this law being passed that's impacting you and your newspaper and you're being forced to make a pledge 
on an issue that's unrelated to what your newspaper serves in terms of a local community. Right. I take it that a lot of this is from the kind of people that are in the legislature in uh, Arkansas, and particularly the Senate Majority mm-hmm. Leader, Bart Hester, who is... Yes, a, these, these, these are fundamentalist, evangelical Christians, and they have, they have a they have a sort of a non-mainstream view of the end times. And part of what they believe is that, uh, that Israel has got to return to the borders of King David and Solomon before we can have the second coming in Armageddon. So the, the fundamentalists, which Senator Hester is, is an evangelical Christian, uh, they want to help Israel in any way they can support Israel because they want Israel to regain those borders so that the second coming can occur. We can have Armageddon. And as Reverend Hagee described in the film Boycott, the documentary about this, uh, that the world then can be consumed in fire. And they believe that at that point, the evangelicals, that all the Jews are going to go to hell along with anybody else that is not their brand of Christian. Right. So it's sort of ironic that you have these odd bedfellows. You have the government of Israel, uh, and they are mobilizing a very potent and powerful political force in the United States, particularly in the South. And they don't mind the fact that, you know, these evangelicals are doing this to hurry up so that all the Jews can go to hell. But it's just crazy. Well, <laughs> it's just nuts. And, and, and this and this is the work, this is the political environment that we we have to enter. We have to live in. But also, I want to I want to make the point that it's not just the South and with the evangelicals. It's also California and New York, and more liberal states too, who just who just uh, in a knee jerk way support Israel no matter what. And they haven't looked at this, and they haven't looked to see what impact this is having on civil liberties, freedom of speech, equal protection here in the United States. Well, there is actually an exception for 144,000 Jews get raptured up to heaven, but the rest do burn in hell. I missed that. Yeah, that's in the book of Revelation. But by the way, you and I, we burned in the lake of fire. So that's it. So in many ways, this end of times stuff is spiritual pornography because it's really a massive investment in the death and the end of the world. And then only the Senator Hester and his ilk are the ones that get raptured up to heaven. And uh, yes, yes. why anybody takes this seriously is unbelievable, but it is a potent political movement, as you say, and it's affecting your life and your newspaper. And it is. So let's just go through the steps here in terms of where you stand with trying to get out from under this situation mm-hmm. where you are defending yourself based on the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment. I take it that you lost in a federal district court. Was that your first yeah, round? Much, <laughs> yeah, it was our first round. And uh, basically the state argued that a boycott is not, a, is not political speech and thus protected. A boycott is simply an economic action and therefore subject to state regulation. And our argument was that this country was founded on um, uh, on a boycott of tea, uh, the Boston Tea Party, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott, obviously political speech. Um, you've got um, uh, in, in Port Gibson, Mississippi in the 60s, uh, the NAACP led a boycott of white businesses because they wouldn't hire black people. And... Uh, the Mississippi Supreme Court sided with the merchants of Port Gibson in a huge judgment against the NAACP, but a unanimous U.S. Supreme Court found for the NAACP that it was protected political speech. So that's our position now, and it's been our position. But after U.S. <clears throat> District Judge Brian Miller ruled against you, you appealed to the Eighth Circuit and won, right? We won, but we won. We won before a three-judge panel, right. and the state appealed for you know to, to be for it to be heard in bonk, you know, with all the justices. And you know, we're not real. We, we've been and we've done that. We've we've made our arguments, 
but the questioning was was pretty 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 negative. I mean, we had one one uh, judge uh, question the constitutionality of the Boston Tea Party. So, you know, that tells us that you know we're on we're on we're on uh, we fear that we're on thin ice. So, and that, and that, any that, of these that, judges of the same kind of evangelical bent as. Senator Hester, or they? I, I don't know, but I will tell you that one of the judges actually wrote a version of the anti-boycott legislation for for the federal government. I don't think that's been introduced. Uh, Schumer was going to was going to introduce it, but they, it kind of collapsed. But he wrote, yes, it was it was about to be introduced. There were all these uh, sponsors on it, and then Gildebrand yeah. uh, in Senator New York, yeah. she yeah she pulled her sponsorship. And when she pulled the sponsorship, it was like the whole house of cards fell and people started looking at it. But this judge wrote the wrote the law. And here I am arguing in front of him saying that this is unconstitutional. He was just I mean, he was really aggressive. So anyway, we're you know, the, our, our we're, we're 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 hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. And this happened on September the 21st before the on bank panel of the Eighth Circuits. So yes. you get your ruling soon, right? We're, I was talking to um, Brian at the ACLU the other day, and he said he didn't, really didn't expect anything until after the first of the year. I see. And the ACLU joined you in this suit. Oh, I'm sorry? The ACLU joined you, your newspaper, in oh, this oh, suit. The ACLU, no, the ACLU has been representing us. This they've whole been time, representing you. They've been okay. great. So, they're, they're, they've been fabulous. So it could go to the Supreme Court then, right? The, that's, what, that's what Brian says, yes. He says, you know, I said, are you guys, if we, if we lose, are you guys good to go? And he said, yes. And I also said, should we go? Because, you know, we've gotten favorable rulings. See, this has happened in, in Kansas. It's happened in Texas. And it's happened in Arizona. And in every one of those uh, instances where people refused to sign the pledge and sued the state, in one way or another, the, the law has been overturned. So we're the only lucky people that have have, you know, have not, have not won in, in court. And so if we go to the Supreme Court and, you know, the Supreme Court's pretty conservative, not that this should be a conservative or liberal issue. It really should not be. This is just basic Americanism. But if it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court and we lose, and that puts those other, uh, those other judgments in jeopardy. But this goes beyond the BDS, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions issue vis-a-vis Israel. This goes beyond it because it's also dealing, surely, with these anti-boycott laws in other states. For example, in Texas, they passed two laws which went into effect on September the 1st to prohibit state agencies from conducting business with contractors that boycott fossil fuels and other preventing agencies from contracting with businesses that boycott firearm companies or trade associations. So it's more than just your being sucked into a Middle East squabble here. I mean, this goes way beyond this and, and has much, much greater implications for free speech in America. Well, just think about when the state of Massachusetts uh, uh, passes a law saying that you can't do this to, to business with the state of Massachusetts if you boycott Planned Parenthood. I mean, this this cuts both ways. So we can do blue states and red states, and we can just pledge ourselves completely, uh, you know, into an abyss. And that's what this is. And, and Texas is an excellent excellent example of uh, of how far this can go. But just wait till the blue states get into the act, because it's the same thing, except it's just different different victims. So, do you think, just in closing here, Alan, that the Supreme Court will see the necessity to cut this off at the pass before we get into the kind of mess I'm, that you just described? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I, I would think I'm, I'm amazed that it's gone. I, I can't believe it's gone this far. I mean, when we when we refused to do this, we thought, you know, this is not going to last very long. This is a stupid, unenforceable, unconstitutional uh, law. And and unfortunately for us, it's continued. And uh, whereas it's ended in all these other states, uh, we're still we're still having to fight it. Well, Alan Leverett, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, it's a pl- pleasure visiting with you. Thank you, Ian.
Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Alan Leverett, who's the founder and publisher of the Arkansas Times. His lawsuit against Arkansas's anti-boycott law is being reviewed by the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. And he has an article at the New York Times where a small Arkansas newspaper, Why is the State Making Us Sign a Pledge About Israel? We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the Biden administration's announcement that it is tapping into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in coordination with China, India, Japan, South Korea and the UK. Burning I see Jesus coming, Jesus comes to pay the way. Do you believe in his sweet sensation? Do you believe in second chance? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tyson Slocum, who is the director of the energy program at Public Citizen. He specifically works on promoting decentralized, sustainable energy and providing affordable, clean energy solutions for working families. And he has expertise on federal subsidies for the energy sector and promotes refocusing such incentives away from the nuclear, oil and coal industries towards efficiency, renewable energy and mass transit. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tyson Slocum. Always great to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Tyson. And the uh, Biden administration and President Biden's announced today that they are tapping into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. But this is being done in coordination with China, Japan, India, South Korea and the United Kingdom. So that would lead me to assume here, Tyson, that this is a coordinated effort from the oil consuming nations to try and, you know, take on the cartel, uh, OPEX, who clearly are interested in a higher price and getting more revenues. So that in itself is pretty unusual, is it not? It is. I mean, this is the fourth time that there's been a coordinated strategic petroleum reserve release uh, through the uh, International uh, Energy Administration. Um, The first time was in 1991 during the uh, Gulf War. Uh, second time was in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and Rita in 2005. Third was in 2011 uh, in response to a variety of factors, including the, the Libyan civil war that disrupted uh, global supplies. So it, it, it doesn't happen a lot. Um, and the United States has committed to release 50 million barrels of oil, and we haven't heard all the details of the other nation's commitments, but we estimate that there's going to be an additional 50 million between Japan, South Korea, United Kingdom, uh, China. So the total release here is going to be roughly 100 million barrels. And so uh, when you combine that effort, that's a pretty significant event that um, could, at a minimum, dampen any uh, upward pressure in prices, which is one of the goals of the Biden administration is, you know, just recognizing that gasoline prices, you know, are uh, uh, at their highest level since 2014. They've risen 50 percent just in the last year. And because, you know, tens of millions of Americans don't have access to quality mass transit, they don't have easy access to electric vehicles for a variety of reasons, um, that Americans remain trapped in reliance on fossil fuels. And and until we, you know, do that transition away from fossil fuels, you've got to take some measures to protect people from pain at the pump. And, and this is one step to do that. Well, it's already had an effect on the price of crude, has it not, which has been up at around 80 80- dollars a barrel. And since this announcement was made, the price of oil, Brent crude has dipped 1.9% to uh, $75.30 per barrel. So it's already having an That's effect. That's right. Yeah. And and actually, the, the prices had been going down a little bit before this because most traders correctly anticipated that some sort of 
uh, strategic petroleum reserve release was going to be forthcoming. And so it started to build it into their trade. So it absolutely has had effect. The question is, is it going to have a long term effect? And and, you know, that depends upon sort of what the corresponding releases by the other countries have been. Right now, we're guessing we'll probably have more details in, in the next couple of days. But, Ian, there's additional things that the president could do on a short term basis. And one of the things that that many Americans forget is even though we're the largest oil consumer on the planet, we're also the largest oil producer on the planet. And because we just recently changed the law that allows the United States to export crude oil, um, that was negotiated in 2015 uh, between then President Obama and the Republicans that controlled Congress. In 2015, they negotiated a uh, an end to the ban on exporting U.S. produced crude oil. And since then, you know, since that the lifting of the 2015 ban, crude oil exports have been exploding uh, from the United States. We're now exporting, you know, about three and a half million barrels of crude oil every day. Those exports are having an upward pressure on domestic gas prices. And so a corresponding action that the president could take is he's got authority in the law to declare an emergency, notice it in something called the Federal Register, uh, and uh, the president can unilaterally limit or stop U.S. crude oil exports for a period of up to one year, uh, and, and that could be renewed under this emergency authority. And, and not only would limiting oil exports or stopping oil exports uh, potentially lead to to lower U.S. gas prices, but it also would have a benefit for the climate because right now a lot of oil producers are producing oil for the sole purpose to export it because you can get you know a, a barrel of oil uh, you can sell for a few dollars more uh, in the, into the global market than you could in the U.S. constrained market. And so U.S. producers are seeking to export oil because they can make more money. And so if you limit that by limiting exports, then you you might see a, actually a small decrease in domestic production. And, and of course, most of our oil production is now coming from fracking. And in fact, the most prolific fracking field in the United States, the Permian Basin, which straddles New Mexico and Texas, um, it just hit a record high. We have never produced more oil in the Permian Basin uh, than we are this month. So, um, you know, the record levels of, of fracking oil production in the U.S. isn't helping the climate uh, and, and exporting oil out of the United States isn't helping consumers. Uh, so I think uh, Biden should follow up this, you know, coordinated strategic petroleum uh, reserve release with some sort of action to curtail exports. Well, Tyson, it makes no sense, though. If you're flooding the market, taking oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to lower the price domestically, at the same time, your oil producers in this country are producing record amounts, which they're putting on the, on the global market, which is driving the price up. So you're at cross purposes. Yeah, absolutely. The, the releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve while still authorizing crude oil to be exported out of the United States, you are limiting the effectiveness of drawing from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So it would make absolute sense to uh, marry the Strategic Petroleum uh, Reserve release with a action to limit crude oil exports. And so that's something that you know President Biden absolutely needs to do. And again, I'm speaking with Tyson Slocum, who's the director of the Energy Program at Public Citizen. He specifically works on promoting decentralized, sustainable energy and providing affordable, clean energy solutions for working families. And he has expertise on federal subsidies for the energy sector and promotes refocusing such incentives away from the nuclear, oil and coal industries towards efficiency, renewable energy and mass transit. So a little while back at a CNN town hall President Biden, when he was asked about the rising price of gas and how it was the main driver of inflation, 
he answered the question by saying, well, to some extent I don't have control over it because there's some people in the Middle East that want to talk to me and I'm not talking to them, clearly referring to Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, that they're not cooperating in effect. My understanding is that the Saudis have always been pretty cooperative whenever U.S. presidents wanted the Saudis, who are the world's swing producer, where they have the capacity to really uh, open the spigots and flood the market and lower the price of gas. They're not doing it this time because Mohammed bin Salman wants Biden to recognize him and to talk to him directly. He's, he's poised to become king. And Biden, of course, has said, I'm only talking to your father, who's apparently uh, has Alzheimer's and is kind of a basket case. So that standoff, and, and of course, Biden was pretty clear that he uh, was against MBS appalled by his behavior, as most of us are in the killing of the Washington Post uh, reporter Hashoji. And Biden has referred to him, MBS, as a pariah. So how much is this kind of punk, if you will, this murderous little crown prince in Saudi Arabia responsible for the price of gas in the the rise in the price of gas here in the United States? I, I mean, Saudi Arabia definitely plays a role. OPEC has had a strategy in, in cooperation with Russia to try and, and fix prices um, uh, to, to help out uh, their oil dependent uh, countries. And, and you're absolutely right, Ian, that that the Biden administration, rightfully so, has a rift uh, and a problem with Saudi leadership. Um, this was part of the reason why the Obama administration pursued this deal with uh, Iran on its nuclear production was really to try and challenge the Saudis' dominance over Mideast politics. And to try and provide a counter. And, and the Obama administration's thinking was, what have the Saudis done for us lately? They're not an ally of democracy or US interests. And we might as well try and encourage some, some competition for uh, influence in the region. And, and I think Biden is, is doing a continuation of that. And, and obviously the, the Crown Prince's direct implication in the murder of a uh, Washington Post journalist strengthens Biden's position here. And so uh, I, I think it's the right thing to do morally and economically to not engage with the Saudis and to try to isolate them. Uh, and so, yes, the Saudis through OPEC are partially responsible for the current run up in, in, uh, in prices. And so, you know, hopefully this strategic petroleum uh, uh, release coordinated between the United States and several other uh, countries has uh, a strong uh, short term effect to to reduce those prices and importantly, send a message to the Saudis that we're prepared to take action. Um, and so it's, it's going to be interesting to see what. Saudi uh, and OPEC's uh, reaction is going to be to this coordinated action. So will we see, when you talk about the effect, how soon will we see uh, an effect? As I mentioned, there's been a dip in the West Texas crude and Brent crude since this announcement. Could it happen soon? I mean, yeah, I, I think, well, some of it depends upon the details that emerge from the commitments from the other nations to release uh, reserves. Uh, China actually has fairly significant reserves that it could release. Uh, you know, Japan, the United Kingdom, South Korea. So once we start to get details, and then we start to understand the timetable here, right? Because the United States has has committed a release of 50 million barrels. When are they going to be doing that? Over what time period? What price are they going to be selling at? These are all going to be important considerations to be able to gauge the uh, the effectiveness of this, uh, you know, coordinated strategic petroleum uh, release. Well, China is the world's biggest importer, so they have a real dog in this fight, don't they? Oh, absolutely, and and that's why it was important that they were a formal part of this cooperation agreement to release reserves. So, you know. Um, 
you know, China has the capacity to release about 30 million barrels. We'll see what what they end up committing to to releasing. So, um, you know, it's going to be uh, these details are going to be very important to gauge the effectiveness. But the fact just the fact that, you know, the United States has has formally entered into this agreement with all these other countries is a clear sign that this is of strategic importance to these countries. And so just the fact that that we're able to coordinate with China, and, and as you know, we've got a whole bunch of diplomatic problems with China right now. The fact that we found common agreement on a strategic petroleum reserve release uh, is a significant uh, thing. And, and you know, like sure. I said at the beginning, this is only the fourth time that there's been a coordinated release among these countries, uh, and we haven't done it since 2011. So this is a fairly rare event, and the fact that it's happening uh, just shows how important you know what's going on in petroleum markets are uh, to the United States and our allies. Sure, and it was only what a few days ago that President Biden had a over three hour conversation with China's Xi Jinping. So I'm sure this issue came up, but. Just in the last couple of minutes, uh, Tyson, it wasn't long ago that the price of oil was so low that <laughs> they were almost begging people to take oil off their hands. I mean, what happened? Well, I mean, what happened was uh, that, you know, the United States, the majority of our production comes from fracking, from hydraulic fracturing. And fracking is far more capital intensive than conventional oil production. And so it's a lot more expensive. Uh, the depletion rates, the rate at which your production rate declines with fracking, it drops off a cliff after the first year. And so as a result, you have to constantly on an annual basis, refrack your well, uh, which uh, involves obviously a lot of water consumption, but also a lot of capital expenditure. And so uh, the US oil production has significantly higher costs than some of our global competitors, particularly in the Middle East. And so once you started to have demand destruction because of COVID, people weren't flying or commuting by car anymore. So oil prices plummeted. These frackers uh, went into the red very quickly. Uh, and we saw a wave of bankruptcies uh, because it was sort of a, a financial Ponzi scheme that they were running. They uh, they were always um, sort of overextended financially and lower prices exposed it. And so you had a pullback in production. And so these producers, particularly in the U.S., uh, because they need higher prices in order to break even, so once the economy started getting going again, people started returning to work, people started flying again, we saw demand go up and production was lagging. And so that lag between increased consumption, not just in the United States, but globally, and a lag in production meeting that, you saw, you started to see traders freak out and push uh, oil prices high. So in a nutshell, that's sort of what, what transpired. So just in the last uh, minute here, Tyson, this whole conversation and this situation that we're discussing, uh, the price of oil and how gasoline at the pump being the main, main driver of inflation, which is a, obviously something that's dogging Biden, along with all the other problems he has, is obviously a political issue. But it also sort of goes completely against the grain in terms of what just happened at COP26, the whole idea that we have to... to to deal with the existential challenge of global warming and transition as quickly as possible to alternative energies and get rid of coal and fossil fuels in general. That's the message. That's the reality. And yet here we are talking about needing to pump more oil. I mean, what's happening Correct. to the debate? Well, what's happened to the debate is the recognition that, um, that we need a, a just transition away from fossil fuels, that we're not there yet. That, you know, 144 million Americans are technically defined as low income. And most Americans live in areas of the country that have terrible public transit systems. 
that are unreliable and inefficient to meet their childcare and working needs. And so, and, and many low-income Americans don't have the capability to have an electric vehicle or can't afford one. And so simply saying, well, we all know we need to transition off of oil. I mean, President Bush said it in, in his State of the Union address in, in 2004, 2005. He said, America's addicted to oil and we need to get off of it. That was probably the only time I've ever agreed with, uh, uh, with George Bush. Um, so we've known for a long time that we need to get off of oil. The climate catastrophe needs us to get off of oil. But in this meantime, you have to do things to protect working families that don't have viable alternatives to get off of oil. And so that's what this is about. This is we need short term solutions to deal with price exposure to fossil fuels until we have a long term solution to get us off of fossil fuels. Well, Tyson Slosom, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always my pleasure, Ian. Well, thank you, Tyson. Again, I've been speaking with Tyson Slocum, who is director of the energy program at Public Citizen. He specifically works on promoting decentralized, sustainable energy and providing affordable, clean energy solutions for working families. And he has expertise on federal subsidies for the energy sector and promotes refocusing such incentives away from nuclear, oil and coal industries towards efficiency, renewable energy and mass transit. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an appraisal of President Biden's speech today addressing inflation. I've been waiting for years to buy a brand new Cadillac. But now that I've got one, I want to send it right back. I can't afford the gas for my luxury limousine. But even if I had though, no one's got no gasoline. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mike Consul, who is the director of the Roosevelt Institute, where he focuses on economics, inequality, and the role of public power and democracy. He's the co-author with Joseph Stieglitz of Rewriting the Rules of the American Economy. And his latest book is Freedom from the Market, America's Fight to Liberate Itself from the Grip of the Invisible Hand. And his blog, Rorty Bomb, was named one of the 25 Best Financial Blogs by Time Magazine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Consul. Thanks for having me back on. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike. And what did you make of President Biden's uh, speech on inflation? He's obviously on the defensive. You've got Senator Joe Manchin all uh, upset about inflation. And you had recently the report from the Labor Department uh, saying that inflation increased 6.2% in the 12-month period ending in October the biggest increase since 1990, and, and of course uh, Manchin seized on that, and people are concerned about getting Christmas goods and even, even Thanksgiving turkeys, but it seems like the president was pretty reassuring about those things at least. Yeah, absolutely. I think he um, hit a couple of really important points. One is first is to acknowledge that this is a real thing for people in their budgets. Uh, the price of food, the price of gas um, are things that are really relevant and really resonating with people um, as we get through this recovery from the pandemic. But I think he also pointed out a couple other things that were really important. One is that the economy itself is growing very rapidly. There's been almost six million new jobs this year. The economy is uh, recovering at basically five times the rate of the Great Recession. It's just been a really remarkable recovery. Uh, real wages are up, even adjusted for inflation, for about 7% of people over the past year and a half. Um, you know, household balance sheets, uh, families are much more secure. Their wealth is up because of efforts made by the American Rescue Plan. Um, and you're seeing a wide range of people changing jobs, people starting businesses, uh, workers demanding better wages. Um, that's really positive and things that we're really missing over the past decade. So one is that he just emphasized that the economy is going well and inflation is part of the process of getting that strong recovery going. And second, I think he really brought down that inflation is happening as we see it right now from a couple specific things that are very related to the pandemic and the recovery. One is supply chains, the ports, uh, more people purchase durables and goods rather than services. So though the economy is not um, too hot, it is in fact balanced a little bit more towards durable goods and that small balance, especially given so many businesses stood down production because of the pandemic, they didn't anticipate the swift recovery in the vaccines means that a lot of our supply chains are choked. And 
ports are overrun and, you know, President Biden and his team is doing their best uh, and making successful uh, efforts, as, as he brought up, to, you know, increase the number of hours at ports, get the things running again, get, you know, get, get things delivered. He also looked at gas, which gas prices, the raw price has gone down, but the price of the pump is not. So they're investigating gas companies and seeing what's actually going on with that, uh, that kind of monopoly style market and whether or not there's some pricing abuses going there. And in general, this year, inflation hasn't been the broad phenomena that we've seen in the 1970s or in other periods where people are worried about inflation, um, but instead really, really contained to the specific problems of reopening an economy out of this kind of out of this pandemic that we haven't done in a century. And so keeping that in mind and understanding that this will get better. Uh, people are figuring out, businesses are innovating and figuring out how to work their supply chains better means that th this is not something to overreact to. It's something to acknowledge and do appropriate fixes to manage. But in terms of the price of gas, which I think is the main driver of inflation, I'm not sure that, in fact, at a town hall meeting a little while back on CNN, uh, Biden hinted that Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, the architect of the murder of uh, the Washington Post reporter Shoji, who Biden is treating as a pariah, but on the other hand, MBS wants Biden to acknowledge him as the, the, as the future king. Normally, the Saudis accommodate U.S. presidents. They are the big swing producer of oil, and clearly they're not cooperating under these circumstances. Whether or not MBS is working to help Trump get reelected, that's still a possibility given their close ties. How much do you think that's a factor? And there's also, isn't there a paradox here, Mike, in as much as the U.S. is still a huge producer of oil and from fracking, which it's exporting. So on the one hand, you're opening up the strategic petroleum reserves in coordination, by the way, with China, India, South Korea, Japan, and the U.K., but on the other hand, you know, the U.S. is exporting oil where the oil companies make more money on the global market. So you're being pushed and pulled in different directions here, aren't you? Yeah, there's a lot of different geopolitical issues at play here. I'd emphasize a few things. One is that these problems are global. So there may be specific things vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and its geopolitical partners and adversaries across the globe. But, you know, the UK, Russia, other countries are also having problems with energy prices right now because of the nature of the downturn, the severe downturn of the pandemic and very quick reopening. So, um, you know, you can look at specific things vis-a-vis -vis the U.S.'s position and, and, how it's, and how it's situated. But, you know, this is a problem that is global because energy markets are global, um, as you just indicated with the way the U.S. is also an exporter. So figuring out the global problems, I think, is is very important. Second, I'd say like, you know, the volatility of energy prices is very big and, you know, it's very wide and very strong. And it's why a lot of economists tend to actually look at inflation excluding energy because the prices are so volatile and supply and demand are moving in such ways that it's not the kind of persistent inflation economists are a little bit more worried about. Uh, though it's obviously what consumers feel and they're very worried about. Uh, what I'd say is that you know, looking towards non-renewables and, and looking towards decarbonization of our economy and the medium and long-term goals, which is just central to the, the survivability of the planet over the next century, um, that makes, you know, the energy provisions in the Build Back Better plan and, and other efforts by the Biden administration to curtail carbon, is, um, you know, to produce a greener economy that produces less carbon in the atmosphere is important because those prices can help supplement, um, you know, that, that green energy can either be less volatile or help stabilize our demand for energy in a way that some of these geopolitics will help balance out some of the geopolitical challenges we face. And again, I'm speaking with Mike Consul, who's the director of the Roosevelt Institute, where he focuses on economics, inequality, and the role of public power in our democracy. He is the co-author with Joseph Stieglitz of Rewriting the Rules of the American Economy, and his latest book is Freedom from the Market, America's Fight to Liberate Itself from the Grip of the Invisible Hand, and his blog, Rorty Bomb, was named one of the 25 best financial blogs by Time magazine. Well, in his speech today, President Biden pushed back against this myth that his and his administration's efforts to combat the climate crisis for example, you know, he, he toured the GM factory in Detroit last week, which he mentioned, where they're building electric cars. He felt the, the need to say that 
the production of electric vehicles is not raising the price of gas. So where do these myths come from? Where, where in general is this sense that inflation is a huge problem and that Biden's policies are causing it? So there's a couple of things that are happening. One is that, um, you know, I, I think we should acknowledge that for a lot of families, seeing, you know, an increase in the price of groceries or, or price of gas to fill their cars is a real concern. And so it's not, uh, it is not a concern that is wholly made up or it's not a concern that is, does not require a response and an understanding of what's happening and how to deal with that. That said, I think um, a lot of conservatives are attacking Biden on every angle that they can find. And uh, they're acknowledged, they're attacking the inflation part of it without a you know, attacking the high wage growth, the rapid and amazing amount of jobs that have been created over this past year, taking kind of a very selective narrative there. There's also, a, a, you know, professional economists um, worry when inflation gets too high in a way and with a vocality and with an urgency in which they don't worry if unemployment is 10% for many years, as it was for years and years after the Great, Reci- great uh, Recession. You know, years after the Great Recession, unemployment was still 7 8 9%. Um, now it's already uh, below 5% and rapidly approaching 4%. We will probably be at pre-pandemic levels at the end of next year, which is five times faster than recovery from the Great Recession. However, I think it's in the nature of a lot of professional economists to see you know, a little bit too much inflation, which nobody likes, uh, and under, think of that as an existential problem in the way they don't think of mass unemployment as having the same stakes, even though we are solving that problem very rapidly through the actions the Biden administration has taken. Well, you mentioned earlier, Mike, about the uh, administrations looking into what's going on with the oil companies in terms of their manipulating prices and in terms of what you just mentioned, where Americans really do understand that inflation's a problem because their grocery bills are going up rapidly. Apparently, the biggest driver of price rises in terms of food have been with meat and beef and pork in particular. That's apparently has a lot more to do with the fact that you have these meatpacking monopolies, the Brazilian brothers, J&B's, and along with the Chinese-owned Smithfield. They're the ones that are running up the price. It's the producers of beef and pork. The farmers are getting screwed by the meatpacking monopolies. So there are obviously problems here. And do you think in targeting these problems, whether they're big oil companies or big meatpacking companies, the American people get it, or are they just angry at the prices at the pump and the prices at the supermarket? Oh, I think I think for most people, uh, even well-educated people who follow this stuff um, closely, it's really tough to understand how concentrated um, you know meatpacking and many other of our industries have become over the last several decades. I think there's a sense, maybe because of the internet, maybe because of like apps on our phone, that the, the people maybe have this knee-jerk reaction to think the economy is very entrepreneurial and small-scale and local. But actually, consolidation has happened quite rapidly across industries over the last 30 years. Um, and there's, this is robust to many measures of, of ways of, of looking at it. And you know, the way that is intersecting with this recovery is complicated. We know that corporate profits are up quite a bit uh, across the board. You know, people are, because we learn about it after it's happened. So people are trying to understand exactly the intersection between, you know, monopoly power, uh, you know, consolidated industry power and price increases. And it's certainly playing some role. Now, we don't want to overemphasize it because we do know that, you know, the issues with, with goods and services, the fact that we haven't fully gotten past COVID yet, the fact that the ports still have problems from decades of underinvestment, which has a relationship with, you know, consolidation and financialization, the Wall Street takeover of our corporate facilities, but uh, runs parallel to them. So uh, I think it is absolutely something to have as part of the discussion. You know, the thing we'd want to emphasize that inflation isn't one specific thing. It's a lot of different things. And that can be underinvestment supply chains. It can be a very different set of goods people are buying because they're scared to go to restaurants or scared to travel over this year because of the Delta variant. Uh, and it also has stuff to do with concentration and who has the ability to set prices and take prices in our economy. And so tackling across multiple fronts while always keeping our eye on the price of full employment and the rapid recovery and getting past COVID, I think is a really good way of approaching this. And it's what the Biden administration seems to be doing. And how long do you think it'll be before the consumers feel less pain at the pump? 
For gas prices, I, I don't know enough to say. I mean, they're volatile and they're complicated. And they have their own dynamics. It seems like all uh, more generally, it seems like a lot of the supply constraints in the economy are coming down. It looks like perhaps the worst is behind us. Um, certainly, over the next few months, we and many analysts, uh, financial markets and uh, the economy and otherwise, are expecting inflation to slow down. Notably, in the spring, the government's fiscal support for the economy will turn that negative. It will, uh, you know, because the American Rescue Plan was a one-time investment in jumpstarting our economy. There won't be another round of that next year. And the spending and investments in Build Back Better and the recently passed infrastructure bill um, won't raise deficits in the short term. They're not designed to do that. They're designed to create medium-term investments to help build out our supply capacity and help with inflation and price points in that way. So, I'd say that. You know, over the next few months, uh, it's not that it's going to be bumpy, but with smart targeted policy interventions and under and the Federal Reserve not overreacting to everyone's short term concerns can seen through the short term supply chains uh, and understanding what the fundamentals are. And I think the fundamentals are still incredibly strong for this economy. Right. Well, in fact, Biden did say in his speech today about gas prices it will take time but before long you should see the price of gas fall where you fill up your tank and then of course as i mentioned earlier he did reassure people in terms of thanksgiving he said families can rest easy grocery stores are well stocked with turkey and everything else you need for thanksgiving and the major retailers i mentioned have confirmed that their shelves will be well stocked this holiday season so that's the assurances. Um, just in closing, Mike, do you think that this is going to satisfy people like Senator Manchin? Um, you know, I think people who are nervous about inflation, uh, there's good reasons and bad reasons to be nervous about it. I think those concerns will hopefully drop out as the um, as kind of wither away as the economy hits a new stage of, of investment and development and some of the supply chain issues start to to ease off. Um, now that, you know, that some of the Federal Reserve nominations are, are behind us, there'll be more nominations soon. Um, Build Back Better will hopefully pass soon in a robust and expansive form. And then I think the economy, you know, people kind of look more concretely at what's happening in the economy instead of this kind of like in-between space. Um, I think that will help with some voters. And then I think, you know, next year, or in the middle of next year, you're going to look at a recovery that put on millions and millions of jobs more than it had any right to do without the American Rescue Plan, without the energy and efforts of the Biden administration. And I like to think voters will hopefully reward them for that, because I think between wages and employment and, you know, economic security for our families, uh, it's been a really remarkable recovery that most other peer countries just don't have the experience of that we have. Well, Mark Consul, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Mike Consul, who's the director of the Roosevelt Institute, where he focuses on economic inequality and the role of public power in our democracy. He's the co-author with Joseph Stieglitz on rewriting the rules of the American economy. And his latest book is Freedom from the Market, America's Fight to Liberate Itself from the Grip of the Invisible Hand. And his blog, Rorty Bomb, was named one of the top 25 best financial blogs by Time magazine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by